Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is now time for Hour 2 of Guy Talk. An absolute delight. I look forward to hanging with my friends around this table and going through the questions that get sent over. Thank you so much for uh, participating and, and taking the risk and sending your question over because we love getting questions and we love answering them. I want to do a little lightning round uh, at the top of this hour. My panel today is Jeff Verdorn. Tom Parrish and Greg Borgond. Uh, gentlemen, to get things started, I'd like you to all pick a word and tell us what it means. I got an email this week from our program director that said, somebody heard the word ex- exhort, exhort fellow believers, and they didn't know what that meant. And so we just we need to make sure we're telling people what words mean. Now, the, the word exhort, a better, a better way to say that would be to strongly encourage or urge, urge, yeah. or urge somebody. Instead to of stress, to underscore, yeah, yeah. to to uh, to make uh, almost hyperbole in, in terms of uh, a blessed exaggeration to illustrate a point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're urging somebody. It's it's important. It's critical. That that's yeah. exhortation. So I'm going to exhort you guys to say a word and then okay. tell me what it means. All right. Let me start. I'll I'll use the word believe, which everybody thinks they really understand. Believe. Uh, isn't just mental affirmation of a given fact or this table that's in front of us. Yeah, I, I believe it exists. When it talks about it in the Bible, especially related to salvation, the word, the Greek word is pisteo, which means to trust in, rely on, and cling to. So when you look at a passage like Romans 10, 9, and 10, where it says, believe on the Lord, Jesus Christ, it's meaning trust in, rely on, and cling to for all you know him to be at that moment. It's just not affirming that he existed. It means that you will trust on, trust in him, rely upon him, and cling to him. Nicely done, Greg Borgon. All right. Who wants to go next? I like the word faith, and we use it so much in Christianity, but I'm not sure people always understand it because I have people say to me, boy, Pastor, if I only had more faith, you know, like it's a quantity, and you, you, know, you could pick up a quantity of more faith somewhere like at the— trip. It doesn't work that way. Biblical faith is putting your total confidence in an object, and that object is Jesus. In other words, it's not how much I believe, it's who I'm believing in, and putting my total confidence in what Jesus has said in his word, what he's done, and what he's going to do. And when I have faith like that, it doesn't depend on my moods, my ups and downs, or the circumstances. It all depends on Jesus. You know, it's fascinating. We picked all three very similar words because the word I was thinking of is abide. We see this word abide in John 15 Mm -hmm. where it says, abide in me uh, as a believer and you will bear much fruit. But that word abide means to be connected to, to remain in. And, And obviously, we as the branches are connected to the true vine, who is Jesus, through believing by faith, we then <laughs> abide in him, and so we continue to abide in him, and he then bears fruit in our lives. So it's, it's a huge theme in Scripture. We are exhorted, <laughs> if I can use that word, over and over to trust in him, 
to, to, to love him with all of our hearts, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to set your mind on things above, to store up treasures in heaven. I mean, over and over, this is all to, to have your faith in him, to trust in him, to abide in him. Nicely done. That was fun. We'll do that again. All right. When Jesus fed the 5,000, how did they know there were 5,000 people? Well, they had the ticket thing. At the, at the the thing. Turnstiles. They yeah, had the turnstiles. Uh, Guy standing there with a clicker. I think in that case, when it says that nice round number of 5,000, yeah. that it was a, you know, a, not an exact count, but mm-hmm. an, an estimate of the size. And, um, you know, I, and by the way, it it would have just counted, they would have just counted men yep. and not women and it children in those days. So that is a, a tradition in scripture that when mm-hmm. you see a number count, it's often uh, counting the men. So there's actually even more yeah. than 5,000 people. It there. also depends on the locale. Like, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount where it was delivered, that it was kind of in a, in a hollowed out, he was standing in a hollowed out area. And so oftentimes numbers were determined by environmental uh, constraints like this hollowed out this valley could only hold certain number and if it was filled then you could say well it's, it's about 5,000 or, or whatever it might be hmm. thank you for that all right can you please comment about profits this is from last hour uh, is there such a thing as new present day profits the bible says in revelation that the bible should not be added to or subtracted from there are profits today i believe that with all my heart but prophets today, like biblical prophets, have two roles. One is to foretell, that is, speak for the Lord right now in the current circumstances and bring his word. The other, which we often uh, attribute to prophets, is foretelling the future. And there's some of that too. So both can be there. The point that I understand when it comes to prophets is this. It's easy to proclaim what you believe the Lord is going to do in the future, but you have to go back and look at the Word of God and see how it all fits together. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then I'm very leery of it. And if it doesn't line up with all the other leadership of the church in the sense of, you know, the elders and the the other people where they're saying, we sense from God's Word, this is what's being said, or we're in unity, unanimity with this, then I'm cautious because you go on the Internet right now and there are thousands of prophets and they each have a different statement they're making, and I respect all of them. I, I hope they're right on, but I hardly listen to them apart from going back to the Word and saying, this is what Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There is First uh, Corinthians 12 and First Corinthians 14 are two chapters where a lot of the spiritual gifts are described, and, and we get a lot of our information about what each of them are, are all about. Um, some, just to kind of throw a theological uh, a distinction, some believe that the spiritual gifts have ceased in some way. They're called cessationists. Mm-hmm. Others believe that the spiritual gifts are still valid today, continuationists. Um, it's interesting because I, I think it's pretty clear in Scripture. Paul is 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 describing these gifts to the Corinthians and how they should be used within the church. Um, so... Um, it seems to me that if Paul is instructing them on spiritual gifts, we still have spiritual gifts and that they're still around today. Prophecy is one of them. And I think the key distinction, if we just reiterate it, there's a distinction between foretelling, as in future mm-hmm. prophecy, and foretelling, bringing the Word of God to bear in somebody's life. Nicely done. All right, gentlemen, 
we use the idea of competition in the church to motivate people towards some kind of goal. Can you give any examples from Jesus where he encouraged competition between his followers for any reason? I can't think of one. The only thing that's coming to mind is Paul using the metaphor of running a race. That's Paul, not Jesus. Yeah. And that is, he, he wants us to finish strong in faith, and it's really not being competitive, not being competitive in a in, no. in way. No. And I can't think of one either. No, I can't either, not in that sense. I, I don't know any way, as a pastor, I've tried to make people compete against one another. The only, the only one that they are aligning themselves with is the Lord Jesus himself, not against one another. Well, I mean, if you're talking about competition, it's usually a test uh, that declares a winner and a loser. And I don't see Scripture laying that out um, or walk like that. And so, consequently, what we're talking about is not a competition of winners and losers. Um, I, I just don't see it. I think that uh, I just had this thought that kind of inherent in that question is the idea that competition makes somebody better, right? And if you understand biblical Christianity, the moment a person is saved, you've been made perfect. You've been justified. You've mm-hmm. been made righteous. Um, we can live it out, which is probably where the questioner is going, that we want to spur one another on in good deeds and in faith and to help and all the one another's in Scripture to encourage each other and bear each other's burden and be careful to instruct and and gently instruct and so on. And that's building people up in the faith. But positionally, we are in Christ. There's no competition. Whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, you are one in Christ Jesus. So, um, yeah, I can't I can't mm. think of a the only competitive time I've come passage close from Jesus. The competition is at a potluck dinner. When I'm not at the front of the line, but at the back, and people are talking to me, and by the time I get up front, all the good food's gone. But that's the only competition I've ever been in in the church. Yeah, it's the, that's the competitiveness in you, isn't it, Tom? <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't eat the chicken without me there. <laughs> all right, you're listening to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what questions you have for us to discuss. We'd love to hear from you. 877 Again, 877-933-2484. We don't have a lot of days left in August, which is kind of a sad thought. If you're a summer person, you love summer. But we've got uh, fall is around the corner. But in August, we're giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's book. And it's called uh, Closer Than Your Next Breath, Where Is God When You Need Him Most? And because we have 100 copies to give away, you can enter to, to win your copy right now. You can do that at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back in just a minute. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. So you guys uh, having fun today? Yeah, absolutely. Good time. Can you think of anything more fun than talking about God's Word? Talking about no. God's Word with pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you just don't get it, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. 
Not going to happen. All right, here's a question. Can you explain Luke chapter 8, verse 10? Yeah, do you want to read it quick, would you? Yeah, verse uh, 10 uh, says, He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I like to point, in Matthew 13, the disciples actually came to Jesus and said, why do you speak in parables all the time? Why don't you be clear? And he answers them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. I think one of the main reasons that that Jesus spoke in parables is that those who didn't want to hear, those who are going to reject the message, would never understand, but those who would would understand and see the the spiritual principle in the story of the parable. Remember, a parable is just an extended metaphor. It's symbolic language that Jesus is using to describe some kind of spiritual truth. I do a class on parables. 33 of 40 parables are about salvation, or the theme of them is about salvation. That is, that is, that's why Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. So he's saying to them, I'm God in the flesh. If you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. Many are not going to believe that. Some, the narrow gate, would believe that. But I, I would never, this passage I, should not be interpreted that therefore God causes some to see and causes others not to see. Yeah, it may also have to do um, with uh, somebody's spiritual maturity in the sense that there are certain things that we are not ready to hear yet that we are not in a position spiritually, uh, maybe even emotionally, or because of our circumstances to hear yet, or more than that, to even understand. At a particular point in time, God will reveal it to us, but during that period of when we're not ready for it, it may, be, it may do more harm than good. Yeah, and for the unbeliever, just a couple other verses that came up. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, "...for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." Right, mm-hmm. the man without the spirit could, does not accept the things that come from God. Paul says. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the idea here. That here, here I'm, I'm telling some of the. In some cases, he's ta- he's saying a very simple spiritual truth, and those who don't know God, don't have the spirit of God, are just kind of going, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. Right. So my mother used to use this verse on me all the time because she'd say, "Tommy, go in and clean up your room," and I'd go in and I couldn't see anything that needed to be done. But it is, it is the truth for people. We see all the time, but we don't see. We see people in front of us who are um, manipulating us. We don't see the result. We don't understand what they're doing. We see other people are trying to tell us the truth, and we ignore them. I think it is a, the perception here is what we were really talking about. The Lord's not trying to withhold anything through parables. He's not trying to withhold his word. What he's saying is, is the reception of that, you know, when we speak in parables, they don't even pick that up. And parables are much time, you know, I would much rather go see a movie than I would go hear a lecture. And parables are kind of like movies. They give you the movie. You see it. Lectures, you got to sit there and you got to concentrate on what's being said. The truths of the kingdom are kind of like the lecture. This is what the Lord does. But the parables, you know, the parable that comes after this is a tremendous parable on what happens to the seed in the soil. Mm -hmm. But you can see it. Would not see it. And a story is often easier to remember. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, according to End Times, um, is there anything else that needs to be accomplished or take place before the great coming of the Lord Jesus? 
Well, there's nothing else that needs to take place before the rapture. Okay. Everything has been um, complete, uh, and that's the the next thing is the rapture. So uh, there's nothing else that needs to be done, so we're waiting for the rapture. There is a common theme in this coming, the rapture, of imminence, that uh, just as the thief comes in the night when you are not expecting him, and keep your eyes fixed on heaven from where your Savior will come from. Uh, as we look to heaven, he's our blessed hope, and, and that Paul talks about in Titus. So there's this idea, as, the, as we were talking about in the last hour, as the bride is waiting for the bridegroom to come and take her back to the Father's place, we don't know when it's going to happen, but there is this, this expectation and an imminence of this time when the trump will sound and God will call his people home. And when he does, and that day will come, in the meantime, we're to be making disciples. Mm -hmm. And I think what disturbs me the most, and I've told you guys this before, I have gone to lots of conferences on the end times, and they're always packed. I mean, they're packed with people. You have a conference on making disciples. You're like if you can get 50 people there. The whole goal... What we've been told to do, our mission is to go out and proclaim the name of Jesus and make disciples. When the end comes, is up to the Lord. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know I'm going to be there one way or the other. I'm going to be there and I'm going to be part of that. But in the meantime, how many do I get to bring with me? And I often tell people, kind of in, in one way joking but not joking, when you stand before the Lord one day, there are only two questions he's going to ask you. Number one, did you love me? Number two, who'd you bring with you? And we're going to turn around, and a lot of us are going to be shocked there's going to be nobody there. We're to bring people and people we don't even know by our witness. Hmm. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. All right. Uh, Part B of this text that came in is a lot of people are feeling very strung out right now. Can you pray for people who are experiencing that kind of anxiety right now? Life feels... Uh, problematic, filled with turmoil and crisis and maybe a hunk of bad news. Tom Parrish, would you do the pastoral thing and and pray for people who, like this um, listener said, is uh, feeling strung out? Lord, there's so many of us that are overwhelmed by what's going on in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities, and especially in the nation and world. And Lord, we don't see a lot of the good stuff. We don't see all the things you're doing. And too often we get our mind off of the future and that you're going to come again and you're going to have the final word in all things. So, Lord, right now in our depression and being down, lift us up and show us how to lift up one another. That, Lord, we have a hope and a future. And we know, Jesus, you will have that final word because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We praise you and thank you and look forward to the day, Jesus. We see you face to face. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, let's get into the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Self-control. Self-control. Yeah. Did I get all those right? Yeah. Well, first of all... I when like we, I missed one. <laughs> first of all, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not fruits, plural. It's singular. Oftentimes when I teach on this subject, I bring an apple into uh, my presentation and I say, now look at this apple. I said, it's got rind, it's got core, it's got pulp, it's got seeds, it's got stem... But it's all an apple. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is given to every believer at the moment of their conversion in seed form. It's something that has to be cultivated so it produces 30, 60, 100-fold. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it can often be seen also as the familial set of values you receive from the family 
of God. In other words, it's those values that God considers paramount of most importance. Another way of looking at this is that it's really the character of God. What he's imparting to us in the form of the fruit of the Spirit, the seed is his character that has to be cultivated. So when we talk about love, joy, and peace and cultivation, the only way it can be cultivated is with an ever-deepening relationship to the Heavenly Father because he is love, joy, and peace. And so if you want that love, joy, and peace as part of his family, then you do it by deepening your relationship and the vital uh, vitality of your relationship with the Heavenly Father. When you talk about patience, kindness, and goodness, the only way that that can be cultivated is interaction with others. There are many people in our lives that uh, try our patience. There are opportunities that we have to be kind. We can make those choices, opportunities to be good. But it's always in relationship to others. So love, joy, and peace is upward. Uh, Patience, kindness, and goodness is outward. And then the last three, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is inward spiritual disciplines that need to be cultivated. You have to learn to be faithful. You have to learn to be gentle. And you have to learn to moderate your behavior so that when the fruit of the Spirit is evident to a fallen world, it represents the kingdom of God. Now, the degree to which you manifest the fruit of the Spirit by how you live and how you act will determine in, ter- in terms of the impression people have about what it means to be a follower of Christ, when they don't see these things, then how can you claim to be a follower of Christ? So they're representative of our walk with the Lord. They're representative of the values that are on the heart of God. They're representative of our relationship with him. One of the ways I think about this, uh, I know a young man who many years ago was in college, and he met an exchange student. She was from France. Boy, she was the best-looking woman he ever saw in his life. But he didn't speak French. She didn't speak much English. And over the next six months, he went on a crash course learning French. And then eventually they got married. Here's the bottom line. He gave up everything in his life in order to get close to her and speak her language. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not our fruit until we passionately put ourselves in the presence of the Spirit and in the presence of the Lord and want to be just like him. And the more we do that, so when we're in a trial or a difficult situation, and it's the patience issue that comes up here, the fruit of the Spirit is he wants to give us that fruit and patience, but now we have to practice it in in the circumstances because we want to be like the Lord. You can't stop that story. Did he win the girl? He did. They got married. They got married. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, so his French isn't any good, but yeah. he still loves her. <laughs> I, I, my word. Uh, how much time do we have? Ten seconds. Oh well. No. <laughs> <laughs> now seven seconds. <laughs> All right, okay. we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more guy talk. Let me know. Some great questions are coming in, and thank you for your questions. Thank, thank you for taking the time. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Jeff, Tom, Greg. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. It is Guy Talk. Here's what we do on Guy Talk. You ask questions, and my panel does their very best to answer them. I've got Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, and Greg Borgond here to answer your questions. So maybe it's a verse in Scripture you read that you felt confused by. Maybe you heard something in a Bible study or something at church you want more information on. At the top of the hour, we tried something new where I said, pick a spiritual word and explain it. And if you've got a word that you've heard, any word, and we'll try to explain whatever word you want to send your way. So if you've got one word, text it over, 877-933-2484. Or maybe you just have a regular question, you can send that over as well. All right, uh, Tom Parrish, I'm looking your direction, because in the last segment you talked about uh, arriving at the gates of heaven and Jesus saying, uh, "Do you, did you love me and who did you bring with, bring with?" right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, Michael says, um, does this question not increase pressure upon all believers to close the deal in evangelism? At least one of your guests has noted that we're not all gifted for that. Okay, well, you aren't, and I understand that. But you are an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, rather. You are a minister of the gospel, so we don't get out of the responsibility of making disciples. Here's the big difference. You know, when we had our first baby, I had the responsibility of learning how to change diapers. I I didn't have any understanding what that meant. I just had to learn how to do it. You didn't have that spiritual gift? I didn't have that spiritual Mm -hmm. gift. But when, when Billy Graham was called to call people and get decisions, I don't read in Scripture where it's just decisions we're after. We're called to make disciples, and that's a process. So you may use your gifts. uh, You there may be people with the evangelism gift that will bring the people in, but that's not enough. We bring them in. We also want them to disciple them. And in discipling, we help people grow in their faith, learn the scriptures, be able to witness to others. And you may play an important role in that with your particular spiritual gift. So even if you haven't sat there with somebody and heard them say, I repent of my sins and receive Jesus, Lord and Savior, that doesn't exclude you. And that doesn't mean you're not going to have a host of people behind you. The pressure that I see is not understanding that we're all ministers of the gospel. And you have as much authority as I do or anybody here on this panel. And just let the Lord use you in your gifts. But the goal is for people to know Jesus. Yeah, I doubt that we're going to see very often in heaven somebody coming forward and that somebody's conversion was solely because of that one individual. Right. That there, as you said, Tom, there may be a host of people that played some degree or some role in that person's life to bring them one step closer to considering the claims of the gospel before they actually crossed over the line. Too often, we celebrate the person who has won to Christ on the plane, and then we feel guilty because we haven't won anybody to Christ on the plane. Well, the fact of the matter is, that person who may have won a person to Christ on the plane is standing on the shoulders of multiple people that have been brought into the life of this individual because God is the hound of heaven. He never gives up on us. He's going to keep sending people along the way to bring us one step closer to him. So whatever role you play, whatever parts you have, it's your testimony. It's, it's bringing them one step closer. That's, that's both of those really good words. I'd like to point out one more thing. It's not up to us 
yeah. to close the deal. Mm. Right? Paul That's says spirit. to the yeah. Corinthians that one plants, one waters, just as you're talking about, and, and both of you, but only God is the one who makes it grow. And in the end, the person is responsible for receiving the gift of salvation. It's it's They have to decide. They need to open that door of faith. Uh, but it's God who saves. So we are responsible for being that ambassador that you described, for being the proclaimers of God's truth, the one who proclaims the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. For yeah, it's, 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 oh, go ahead. It's the Spirit of God, as you said, Jeff, that does the conviction. In any conversation you have about the gospel or any aspect of the gospel with another individual, there's always three beings involved in that conversation. You, the person you're talking to, and the Holy Spirit. It's Scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not you, not, not any one of us. It's the Spirit's job to do that. So we have the privilege of being the message bearer. And so consequently, what that person does with that message between them and the Lord and what happens behind the scenes and what the Spirit is doing in the life of that person, that's between the Spirit and that. All we have to do, like I think you referred to, Tom, is just be faithful to the moment. It may simply be in answering a question. Yeah. It may simply be in questioning an answer, and that may be the next step. I, the worst thing that can happen to me as a pastor is to have five evangelists in my congregation and nobody to follow up after them. So you get people to come to church, they've received Jesus, you know, but nobody's greeting them, nobody's teaching them, nobody's putting on the potluck dinner, nobody, you know, is encouraging them. These people go out the back door, you know, and they may have received Jesus and be saved, but they go out the back door and they're not going to grow as disciples. Mm-hmm. And we are called to make disciples. And that is why we need all of us. We need to work together. Well, discipleship begins with evangelism. Yeah. I mean, that's the starting point. And the moment is called conversion. So that's the beginning of the journey. And that's why Scripture says to work out your salvation, not having anything to do with eternal security. Mm-hmm. It has to do with learning and growing in Jesus Christ because it's a lifelong process. Salvation is a lifelong process. Conversion is a moment mm-hmm. that you receive Jesus and you're saved. Nicely done. All right, gentlemen, I am hearing teachers who say we don't need to ask God for healing, that he's given us the authority to command healing. What do you all think? I think it's arrogant. Physical healing, I'm assuming they're talking about physical healing because our spiritual healing is a done deal. Our spiritual healing, we've been healed of, of the greatest disease of all, and that is sin and death. And when you believe you are healed before God. Um, while I think some that we were talking about spiritual gifts earlier, and while I do believe that the spiritual gift of healing still exists, if it was a guarantee for any sickness at any time, then every Christian should receive that physical healing, and then they would live forever. Oh, wait a minute. I've heard that someplace. We do have eternal life, but it's not in this body. This body is wasting away, and every single person that's ever walked the planet has died a physical death. And that's that's just going, well, except for Elijah and Enoch that were caught up to heaven, right? But yeah. everybody else has died. And so that is the fate. We will die physically. Um, and, and so while God can heal, and I think there is the spiritual gift of healing— um, it, it's not a guarantee. It can't be a guarantee of physical healing. And, or, and whoever does have that spiritual gift of healing, um, 
they're relying on the Spirit of God to work through them. So it's not somebody claiming that authority on their own and say, be healed. It's God working through that individual to heal. If Greg becomes the ambassador to Ireland after he's there heading over there tomorrow, (laughs) he is there not to speak for himself, but he has the authority to speak for the government of the United States of America and for the president. When we do have authority, the Bible says we have authority, but it's not our authority just to use. Mm -hmm. Our authority comes from the Lord himself. And when I go into situations where I have to pray for somebody that's sick or have to deal with somebody that's having even uh, demonic problems, there's no power in me apart from the Lord. I go in with the authority of Jesus, and my goal is to speak for him and from his word and pray over those people or to confront it, not to just say, I can do it, and I don't even need to talk to the Lord about it. I'm talking to the Lord about it all the time, under my breath. Hmm. All right, my next question is regarding end times, so raise your hand if you'd like to answer this question. All right, there's just hands going up. <laughs> I think I saw that one coming. Do you think it's possible the temple is going to be built during the first half of the tribulation and the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation pretty much immediately as if it were a grand opening of it? So that's a that's a very informed question because in the end times, it says that the Antichrist will set up an abomination of desolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel actually describes it in... In Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24, Jesus reiterates that an abomination will be set up. And Paul actually confirms in Thessalonians that he will set himself up, the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Now, there has not been a temple standing on the Temple Mount since 70 AD when the last temple was destroyed. But we can glean from Scripture that there will be another temple built because the Antichrist needs to set up this abomination. Now, we know that temple will be standing at the midpoint, that was referenced in the question, Mm -hmm. at the midpoint of the tribulation. What we don't know is when that temple will be built, when the start of that temple will be built. Some believe that the the rapture of the church and the the first half of the tribulation will be the impetus for that temple to be built. That's that's an okay theory, but we, we don't have a Bible verse for that. Um, there is nothing in Scripture that 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 prevents the temple from being started today, tomorrow. In fact, the Temple Institute in Israel today, right now, is ready to build that temple. They have everything they need. They have all the components of the temple. They have trained priests, and they're ready to go today, right now. Now, the problem is, if they started building that temple, there would be uh, a billion Muslims who control the Temple Mount would be a little upset about that, right? And it might actually lead to war. So that conflict right now is keeping them from building that temple. Today. And, and we don't know, even at, at the time that they build it, that there's even going to be a Dome of the Rock or the other temple that's on there. I mean, what, what I mean by that is it, it could be a disaster, a catastrophe, uh, an act of war, or an errant missile, for crying out loud, so we don't even know that that is the case. I've heard others talk about the fact, well, it's not actually going to be built on the mount. It's going to be built in the city of David. Well, the city of David isn't large enough for that temple to be built, but the mount is. And so yeah. I think that's where it's going to be. It's By the way, it's clear that the temple stood on the temple, temple mount, mount and yeah. not in the city of David. That's a yeah. long argument that some are making. And it's just it's clear that the temple mount was the location of both the first and the second mm-hmm. temple. 
It's very interesting because many believe that the Dome of the Rock needs to come down in in order for this next temple to be built. But there are some in Israel saying that they believe the actual location of the temple was just just to the south of where the Dome of the Rock is, and that therefore you could potentially have a temple standing alongside the Dome of the Rock. And if you look to the south of the Dome of the Rock, there's actually a lot of space there. The only other Mm -hmm. building is there's a mosque there, the Al- Al, Al, no, I can't remember the name. Yeah. I just had it on the tip of my Alaska Mosque, I believe. That's further south. But in between those, there is enough open that's space right. to actually build the temple of God. So yeah. some are predicting today that they could potentially be both standing on the Temple Mount. Hmm. Very right. interesting. That is. Nice work, gentlemen. We're going to take a break. Come back. Time for your question. Send it over, please. 877 Eight four. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. What we do on Guy Talk is we just answer questions and we try to do to the best of our ability. And let us know what you have for us. Again, 877-933-2484. And I promise we'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. I've got Jeff, I've got Tom, I've got Greg, and we're here to answer your questions little follow-up question from the previous hour. If you have time, would you please define the word faith once more? I think that was you, Tom Parrish. Yeah, when we talk about faith, faith is not a commodity. It's not something that you have to have more of. It's where you put that faith. Mm-hmm. And the object of that faith in the Bible is Jesus. So that's why Jesus compared faith to a mustard seed, one of the tiniest seeds out there. It's not the quantity that we're after. It is the the, per, the one we're putting it in. So when I talk about faith in Jesus, I'm not saying you, you have to believe more and more and more. No, you put your total confidence in what Jesus has said and what he says in his word, and that's how then you live your life. And if he says that he's going to come for you and you're going to have an eternal life and they've already passed out of judgment, faith says it's over and done because Jesus has said it. And I think that's the, op- the the thing in the church that we need desperately today is to get Jesus back at the center of everything we're doing. So it's not my faith or the quantity. It's who I put my faith in, mm-hmm. and that's Jesus. Well, you'd see, in, in even in Hebrews 11.1, one, it gives a, a, a definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's what you're talking about. It's a trust, and it, it's it, the object of your faith is is what's important. And and you pointed that out, Tom. That's it's Jesus Christ. He is the assurance of things hoped for. And when it talks about the conviction of things not seen, there are some things that have yet to unfold. We just finished having a discussion about what may be happening on the mount. I mean, it's the conviction we know by faith that that is going to be built. Hebrews 11.1, what a wonderful assurance of salvation passage. Being sure 
mm-hmm. of what we hope for. If we did not have biblical assurance of our salvation, you could never say we can be sure of what we hope for. And what did Jesus say to the disciple? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet mm-hmm. believe. So it's not just the sight issue, it's the confidence in who he is. Yeah. I'll throw a little something in here if you guys don't mind. Mm-hmm. You don't mind? Oh, not oh, good. All. In Jeremiah 17, uh, in verse 5, it says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man who draws strength from mere flesh, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. Yeah. So here's a des- description of two people who have faith. One is placing it in man and their own uh, competence, and the other is placing their faith in Christ. So I think this is an example of we all have faith. It's just where you're placing it. That's exactly, exactly right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Somebody chimed in with um, Al. I, I can't even. Uh, Jeff A L A Alaska Alaska I think yeah, that's next how you to say the it. Southern Steps. Yeah. All right. All right. In Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's Every decision is from the Lord. Let's talk about in biblical times, the casting of lots was used to make decisions. What's up with that? Because once you release that dice, you have lost control. And the person who's throwing the dice is basically disconnecting himself or herself from the outcome, leaving it to random chance. But this is not what Proverbs said. Proverbs said that every decision is from the Lord. Yeah. The belief is simply this, that the rolling of the dice is that the Lord is going to manipulate those to give you the answer that he wants, not the answer that you want. Um, I, I I believe with all my heart it's a practice we've lost in the church, and I wish we had it back sometimes when we have to make decisions, because don't we all want to know the Lord's will? And they were convinced this was the Lord's will, and that's why they chose Matthias uh, in the New Testament. We don't do that anymore. The only way I know to do that now is when we come together in prayer and reach unanimity that we all believe we have the Lord's mind together. I would like to point out that, yes, it seems like this was an acceptable practice for the people of God in the Old Testament, and that just as the church was beginning, we had this case in the New Testament in Acts where they cast lots apparently to choose the replacement for Judas, but then we don't ever see it again. Mm -hmm. And so how do we understand God's will as we are making directions today, mm-hmm. but we have something that nobody in the Old Testament had, and that was the indwelling Holy Spirit sure. that That's God right. gives those who believe. And I, I used to, when I was younger in the face, I used to think, you know, I wish God had an email address. You know, we could email <laughs> him and he could email us with everything he wants us to do and what we're to do today. And I can ask him questions and so on. And But today I realize we've got something so infinitely better. Of course. And that is the indwelling Holy Spirit. All right. Nicely done. I'm just looking at some of these other questions. Um, When someone says, I'm handing this over to to God, what would your response be? I think that's a very biblical idea. The proverb says, cast your cares upon the Lord, right? Um, The idea of your burdens, your issues, your concerns, your worries, to give them to Christ, to lay them at the cross, as often a pastor will, will exhort uh, you know, his parishioners, to, to, to cast your cares upon the Lord. So I think it's a very biblical idea. Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, bring your requests to God. I think that's casting them to the Lord. And then he says that his peace 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I, I teach on the subject of uh, circle of concern versus the circle of influence. Circle of concern issues that come up are things that we feel are important, significant, critical, but there's not much you and I can do about them. And then the circle of influence are the things that you have control over and you can do something about them. So what do you do with the circle of concern issues? It doesn't mean that these aren't important. It's the same thing as you lay it on the altar of God through prayer and you release it. And you may have to do it more than once because it's still a concern. But either God hasn't called you to deal with that, he hasn't equipped you to go ahead and make a difference in that area. So you release it to him who can handle it and take care of it. But we may have to do that repeatedly. In my counseling, the first question I ask somebody when they ask that is, tell me about this God. Because I've discovered that people that are in church don't always understand the same God we're talking about in the Bible. Hmm. They have their own version. And I want to know what they're really talking about. And in the end, when we talk about God, most of us have never, well, none of us have seen God the Father. None of us have really seen the Holy Spirit. We've seen the actions of the Holy Spirit. The other one that's been visible is God the Son, Jesus. And if the ultimately this talk of God doesn't come around to Jesus as God the Son, then I question, do they really know who we're talking about here? Because he has personified himself in Jesus, and that's ultimately where it has to go. Mm. Nicely done. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. Um, when you are praying and you're alone with the Lord, what images fill your mind? I know that's kind of an odd question, but I know there's some people that have seen the chosen or they've got a favorite picture that they saw at church 30 years ago and they go to prayer and they, their mind drifts to that or it goes to what, what do you guys think about? Where does your mind go? For me, my mind, that's a very interesting question. I've never been asked that before. I don't know that I've really consciously thought about that before. Mm-hmm. But when you asked it, what came to my mind immediately is in Revelation, there's there's a scene of the throne of God. We only have a few places in Scripture where the throne of God is discussed, right? Isaiah, there's one, Ezekiel, Revelation uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. And it's an amazing description. And we know that that Scripture says God dwells in in inapproachable light, and yet the Son of God is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and Scripture in Hebrew says that we can come before His throne of grace with confidence. And and I think th- I'm realizing that's where my mind goes when I pray is this scene of the heavenly throne in Revelation chapter four and five. Mine almost always goes back to the passage. You know, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, but Tom, what are you seeing in your head? I'm seeing the feet of Jesus because I'm bowing. Okay. Even when I go in prayer, okay, you know, I'm not looking in his face or, or trying to do something like that. I find myself literally, it, when, I'm, when I'm honest with prayer, it's a humbling experience. And I'm on my knees because I don't know the answer, mm-hmm. but he does. For me, I see Jesus sitting and, and almost leaning forward, listening to my prayer. That he's hearing me, that he's interested in what I have to say. And it isn't always I'm waiting for him to say something out loud to me as a result, but I feel loved and I feel heard. Mm-hmm. And so I see Jesus just sitting and leaning forward, just listening to me and looking at me. 
Now, have you created in your mind, Greg Borgon, a a Middle Eastern Jewish man with maybe darker skin and dark hair and dark eyes, and you you see that description yeah, of a man I, kind I, of looking I, I at I kind of do see that. Okay. I mean, now, I didn't grow up that way yeah. because I saw all the pictures that I think we referred to, yeah. blue-eyed um in some cases, blonde hair. The Barry uh, Bannon of Jesus, yeah, I say. Yeah. But, you know, when you actually start to become a student of the Word of God, you understand what it might sure. be. And as a matter of fact, there's these passages in, in Isaiah that talk about he, there wasn't anything about his appearance to attract us. To, to attract us. So I'm, I'm not looking at an ugly person, but right. I'm certainly not conjuring up what I used to when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, this image that I was given when I went to parochial school or, yeah. or We whatever. had a fair at our church in the parking lot a couple of weeks ago. We're right next door to the Muslim community. We have the Jesus film, the QR code on a big poster, and the picture of the guy that played Jesus in it. Yeah. A Muslim woman came up to it, stood there and looked at it and got tears in her eyes and said to the gal behind the counter, that's the man that's been coming to me in my dreams. Hmm. Uh, what am I supposed to do? Wow. wow. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Tom Parrish. That is a lively couple of hours of guide talk. Thank <laughs> you so much for all the great questions that you took a risk and sent over. I hope you had uh, a chance to hear your question. I hope you got it. Uh, if it did get on air, I'll, I'll try to save it for next time. I do appreciate all the questions that come in. I'm sorry if I didn't get to your question. And if you did get your question answered, I hope it's satisfactory. I hope you go back to God's Word and you study some more, because that's what we want you to do. We want you to grow in your uh, knowledge and understanding of God, and we want you to become disciples of His uh, Word. And thank you so much for tuning in today. I love being with you. Thank you so much to my power panel. Have a great evening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.